Hello, and welcome to the Thinking Elixir podcast. My name is Mark Erickson. I'm Cade Ward. And I'm David Bernheisel. Let's jump into the news. With the U.S. holidays, the news seems a bit slower this week. Still, there are a few things we want to cover, so let's jump into those. First up, NX gets an update. Jose shared this one and his excitement over what it means. Some changes that they've made allow them to hook, log, or inspect intermediate values while your numeric definitions or your def n blocks are running in the GPU. Before those def n blocks were a black box, and this starts deconstructing it, plus the ability to debug. That sounds really interesting. Like I don't know how they actually do that. I'm not even sure if it's to the point of setting breakpoints, but on GPU executed code. But just the idea of getting insight into what's running on the GPU would be super helpful for debugging. I don't know what's available in other communities, other tool chains. I'm just glad to see that's now available with NX or will be soon. All right. Also the news, Chris McCord teased something that he's been working on. We got a link to his Twitter tease. And in the tease, he shows a live view component using slots and Tailwind UI styles. So he expresses how clean the components are when you can extract away all of the Tailwind classes. I know that some folks feel like that's CSS soup in your HTML, but the way that these components look in this tease actually look really clean, really simple. I really can see how a design system can come together really, really well with these components in LiveView. So he includes a short video of the fully accessible Tailwind UI dropdown. The tease part is, you know, he's showing it running in a UI called Live Beats, and he mentions songs and stuff. So this all means the obvious thing that Chris McCord is going to become a DJ. He's going to be the next David Guetta. We're really looking forward to that. Good luck, Chris, on your next career move. I'm all <laughs> kidding, of course. But this looks really good. I've been waiting for this kind of stuff to happen. I've been really, really looking forward to like these functional components. I'm so excited. Just seeing the example here and how clean it looks, this is good stuff. So I'm looking forward to it. Just to make sure we're hitting on what he was really showing that was significant for me is that it was fully accessible for site challenge people who are using assistive software where you're able to use keyboard controls up and down to select and change everything without having to use the mouse to click. That's really cool because I know from having tried to do some of that stuff myself, just how hard it is to get it right. And I think he's really been working on that for a while to get a good example of that. So that'll be really cool when when that lands and is more public. Yeah. And next up, Jose Valim shared some early R&D research that they are doing. Jose expresses that one of the biggest concerns today for Erlang and Elixir libraries that want to use native code, things that are compiling into something native to the machine they're running on, is that they impose additional build time tool requirements on the users. An example is if I wrote a library that used a Rust NIF, then it would require users of the library to have the Rust build tool chain all set up. When you add something like Nerves, and these small devices, then getting another tool chain working on that device can be a lot of work and can be pretty painful. So with this work, and we have a link to some of these announcements on Twitter where you can check out a little bit more detail on it. But with this work, libraries using Rustler can pre-compile native code and everything will continue to work transparently for users. So the hope is also that you can get pre-compiled Zig code in the future. This is still early. The idea of providing pre-compiled binaries means that it might introduce a new surface or a risk of supply chain attacks. And so they are making some additional efforts to make sure that we could protect against that 
And that's where some of the more R&D is still remains. But I think it's neat because I know from my time in Ruby, lots of times you download something, a Ruby gem, and it would have to do native compilation. And sometimes that was always the piece that would break, but it would always take a long time. I haven't seen a lot of that doing any kind of native compilation in the Elixir community. Partly, I think it's because most of the code that I'm using in the libraries, I'm using work fast enough and don't need some native compilation. But sometimes you do, especially if you're linking out to something else. This will be really interesting. I really am looking forward to seeing where this goes. Also up is the MPEX Mountain Conference. This one is held in Salt Lake City, Utah on May 6th of next year, 2022. We have a link to the conference in the show notes. Tickets aren't on sale yet, but this news item is just saying that the CFP is open. So if you're interested in giving a talk, they're having a call for papers right now. They're accepting papers. And it's going to be open until March 6th of 2022. So you got a little bit of time. So they've just opened up the CFP. And if you're curious about when to attend it or when to get tickets, those tickets will be on sale starting December 6th of 2021. This conference is led by Todd Ruzadek and Chris Bell, good friends. So I'm sure this will be a good one. The MPEX conferences that have happened before have been either in New York City or on the LA side. So this this gives a, another time zone into the mix there in Salt Lake City, a beautiful city. I'm sure it'd be fun to visit. And last up, the advent of code is getting started. And Jose Valim will be live coding solutions to these advent of code puzzles using Elixir on Twitch. We have a link to his Twitch account on that. This sounds really interesting. I have meant to watch Jose solve these problems in the past, and I just kind of never got around to it. So this year, I'm going to try... Like, if you watch somebody else program, and you don't know kind of the problem space they're working in, it can kind of be hard. I'm kind of excited. I want to solve the problem first myself and like understand the problem and then watch like the creator of Elixir himself go solve it. Then I'm not struggling with like, well, what are you doing? What are you trying to solve here? I know the problem. I can kind of just see how he uses the language, maybe learn some tips and tricks here and there. Like, oh, I didn't know that you could stream like that. Or I didn't realize that that would optimize it like that, you know? Obviously, Jose is going to be the king of Elixir and knows all the tips and tricks of how to do something really succinctly in the language. But the things that I've appreciated more out of like watching people code, and not just Jose, this could be anyone, is witnessing how they break a problem down. Advent and code typically has some difficult problems, especially as you get closer to Christmas. I've never actually completed one of these. I've started several of them, but never actually completed them. I don't have the stamina. You mean completed all the way to the end? Not just one problem? <laughs> no, no, no. I've gotten at least six days, I think, but that was that was it. Oh, yeah. They get harder and harder. and It takes time. And some of these puzzles are, are tough. If I remember right, the first couple of days, like kind of kind of uh, leverage regexes a lot and i'm so tired of programming problems <laughs> that are designed to be solved by a regex i i'd like want to learn the language but they they tend to make me learn how to use regex in the language first <laughs> <laughs> but regardless of that the principles of like how to break down a problem are still there so always down to see how good programmers do that we've got links to all that in the show notes check that out and that's it for the news Fly.io supports this podcast by providing editing services. Beyond being great for supporting us, they are a great place to host your next Elixir app. Check them out at fly.io. In one of our previous news sections, we talked about the safe ecto migrations that you, David, had created as a guide and a resource for the community. And we wanted to dig into that a little bit more now and just 
talk about some of these ideas around migrations in general and things that we see in the community. So first, David, maybe you could tell us a little bit about yourself because you've been a host on the show for a long time, but people who are joining the show, they probably don't know much about you. So maybe you can tell us a little about yourself. So I've been on the show for a long time, as in like from episode one. <laughs> I was here from the from the beginning of Thinking Elixir, at least. And Mark, you and I, you know, and some others, uh, you know, we, we had chatted back in Elixir mix days even, right? I think there was two episodes back then. I helped create a daytime parser library for parsing random strings with hopefully dates in there, trying to make the most sense out of that and turn that into a real daytime struct. And so that's something, you know, that I've done before. And then after that was uh, a couple of blog posts about Ecto, actually. Ecto change sets and Ecto little tips, how to use UUIDs natively from the database side and not from the Ecto side, among other tips. A year or two ago, I had more of an active blog. I don't really have an active blog nowadays. I need to get back to it. But yeah, I work at a place called Stripe. Used to work at Taxjar and Taxjar has been acquired by Stripe. So now I am a Stripe. And I get to solve a lot of big problems. So that's really exciting. And I have an amazing team that I work with. And so at Taxjar, we use a lot of Elixir, a little bit of Ecto. And anyway, so I, I just have a exposure to large data sets. And so I like to come up with some processes to figure out how to deal with that data safely. You know, we have lots of engineers. Not all those engineers have access to that kind of data, but there's a few of us that have been around long enough and are trusted enough to kind of figure out like what's the right way to deal with this kind of stuff. And I'm not the top dog there, right? There's there's other top dogs there. So this is a lot of the, the wisdom that I've gained has actually been shared wisdom with them and and the community at large too. So that's me saying that, well, we're going to talk about some cool Ecto things. I'm not going to admit that I am the authority on these things. This is a collection of of shared wisdom from a lot of different folks that I agree with and I have seen success with. Instead of me writing the article on the on my blog, I started writing this big series about how to have safe Ecto migrations and Fly, your company, and Mark, you specifically even, really helps clean up some of my nasty writing and and illustrate some really cool things and make this like a professional series instead of, you know, random musings on some random blog. If you, dear listener, haven't already checked out the guide, we'll have a link to that in the show notes where you can. On the fly.io blog, there's a section called Phoenix Files, where it's all things that are oriented and focused around Phoenix, which includes Ecto, LiveView, web, everything. And Fly really had an interest in wanting to help this come out because deployment in Elixir space has been a complicated topic at times. And it, the story about that has certainly gotten better over time with releases and becoming more official part of Elixir with mixed release. But still, being able to deploy and have a clustered application that could then even go multi-region, that's where Fly really said, you know, this is something that works really well with Elixir. Other services, other languages like Rails or Django or Node, they can take advantage of Fly and run on Fly, but Elixir really takes advantages of features that Fly provides that other languages just can't really do or take full advantage of because of clustering, because of the ability to have processes and distributed computing. And so Fly really loves Elixir and Phoenix and LiveView. And so we thought, you know, this has a perfect home here on Fly. So we're super happy to be able to host that information and that content. But maybe we should just give a little overview of if the listener hasn't already checked out this guide, what is it they're going to go find when they look at this? Beautiful illustrations. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely beautiful. 
Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the concept's not too bad either. Yeah. There's four parts in this series. So it, it kind of serves as an introduction of what ecto migrations. It, it's really about migrations here. It focuses on ecto migrations. So it starts at the beginning of generating a migration. You know, a lot of that is kind of rehashed from the official ecto documentation, but just reframes it into more of a storytelling instead of documentation and gives you some tips and tools on how to really dig into how this stuff is working. Like the documentation is not going to tell you everything about how it works. So we do, we do some code diving as well in the guide. So like part one is about the anatomy of an ecto migration. And so we go through things like how to inspect the SQL because that's what all this stuff translates into, right? Uh, it goes right into SQL and we talk about how Ecto has some options on how to run those migrations, talk about safeguards in the database. So little shields to help protect you and your team from accidentally running a really long query and locking things up for too long. So that's part one. Part two is gonna be about how to migrate those projects now that you know how to generate one locally. The next step is how to run that stuff remotely on your deployed environment. You know, if you're coming new to Elixir and you're saying, okay, I've got my Phoenix app up and I'm able to run my database migrations, I'm using mixecto.migrate. When you start to deploy, if you're doing the deployment where you're pre-compiling everything, which is really the best way to do it, where you're not compiling on your server every time you start your server, that's using releases. And when you're using releases, you don't have access to mix anymore because that is a development build time tool. That's what your part two really helps people get through is, I know how to build a Phoenix app. I have one on my computer and I don't know how to run that migrations once I put it up on a server. Exactly. Yeah. Because you can't on the server necessarily go mix, you know, phx.server, you know, to start it, you're doing something else. A lot of that is documented in the mix release module, but it doesn't like necessarily generate, maybe it does nowadays, but there's separate guides actually and like one there's one in phoenix and there's one in ecto sql on how to migrate your project ecto doesn't rely on phoenix i don't really go into phoenix too much here i focus mostly on on ecto so we we start with the ecto sql like example on how to create a module for consolidating all of your release tasks that you might have to do and this is a pattern that's in docs right i didn't invent this so for example, if my application is you know, called my app, I would probably have a myapp.release module. And that module is my CLI interface for running these kinds of tasks that you might be used to running on your local computer via mix, like mix ecto.migrate. So you don't have that available remotely, so you need to give yourself that interface. And that's what the release module does. To execute that, you would just use mix releases RPC functions that would just start up a small instance of your app and then call that function directly. That's how that works. And so we just explore about taking the example that Ecto has, expanding it a little bit to give yourself some escape hatches, and just generally trying to understand a little bit more through practice. That's how to migrate a mix release project. And one of the things there that actually uh, is kind of new is is checking migration status, I thought was pretty interesting. Like that's the not part of the boilerplate actually that's in the Ecto SQL migration. That's pretty new, but it is in the mix command. So you can do at mix Ecto dot migrations, plural. And that'll give you a list of all the migrations that it sees. So you got a bunch of them that are up and down, right? And so as a sanity check, maybe as a paranoid engineer, I love to run that first. Just before I deploy any migration, I just need to know 
with 100% certainty which migrations are actually going to run. And so I, I add that to the release module for my own paranoia to see <laughs> what's going to happen before I run those, those migrations. I think it's part three, this next part, that I think is going to be a resource that a lot of people will continue to come back to as a reference. And that's really where you dig into the recipes. Here are some common tasks you need to do. And here is the perhaps naive first approach way and why that might not be so great. You know, you might run into some problems and here's a better way and why. I love the why. Yeah. So part three is migration recipes. It is heavily inspired from Andrew Kane's Ruby on Rails library called Strong Migrations. So a lot of the recipes that come out of here are heavily inspired by that library as the starting point of what scenarios there are. Because they're interacting with the same databases that Ecto's normally going to interact with. So the same problems that occur there are going to occur in Ecto. Ecto doesn't do anything special around that. These are mostly database nuances that we just need to know how to translate well in Ecto. And so strong migration is all about Rails. That's not super helpful for Ecto users, but the database parts are. So took those recipes and adapted it, expanded it into Ecto-specific scenarios. And sometimes Ecto actually gave us another alternative to solving some of these problems. So that was really great. You'll find these recipes actually on, on a couple of other repos, actually. So this isn't novel information. This is just expanded, right? This isn't brand new stuff. There's a couple of scenarios that are interesting, to say the least. And Locally, you're almost never going to see these effects when you're running these migrations locally. For example, adding an index on a column. Your local development database is probably super small. When you run your migration, it's just boop, done, you know, instantaneous. But when you're in production, in the context of 100 million rows, for example, that's not instantaneous anymore. That's 10 minutes of running this index. The side effect of adding this index is that it locks these tables as it's indexing the table in the column. When it's locking that database table up, your other concurrent processes that are trying to maybe read from that same table or update that same table, they're going to have to wait because there's a lock on it. That's the uh-oh. You know, that's, that's the bad example. This is what you don't do. You don't want to do this. And so there's, a, there's a, a, a clear example. This is the bad way of doing it. This is the good way of doing it. And understanding too that it, it's not exhaustive. Like it's not like a, this is bad 100% of the time for your data. This is probably bad for a majority of the time <laughs> for most people's data. So there's always going to be that asterisk on all these explanations. But that's one example. There's another example, which I thought was interesting was our check constraints. These are maybe less used. These can typically be handled in application code, but for data integrity purposes, you might put these kinds of checks inside of the database. So one example is price can't be zero. And so instead of having like an Ecto change set validation that says you know, in application code, your amount column has to be greater than zero. You might put that into the database and you might do that because you have other code bases in different languages that might be looking at the same database table. Is that a good idea? Probably not, but that could be true for some folks. It's a topic of data integrity, so why not put it into the database table? It's efficient at doing that, and it 100% guarantees that you'll never have a zero amount, whereas application code can kind of ebb and flow over time, and maybe there's a bug in the, you know, in the application code. And so if you're adding these check constraints to an existing column, 
there's actually two operations that are happening when you try to add that constraint. The first one is adding the constraint. And then the second one is validating the constraint against existing columns. If you add the migration, the act of migration to add this check constraint, you may not realize it, but it's also going to fully scan the table for all existing records. And that can be a lengthy process. And that will also lock up the table <laughs> for the duration of that, that migration. So like those are two good recipe examples, but there's like a bunch of them in, in the guide. The last part is about backfilling data. Now, I'm not going to talk about that right now. We're going to come back to this. That's the series at large, right? It's anatomy of an migration, how to migrate in, in a production environment, all these different recipes. And then finally about how to like, how to change data in bulk of stuff that's already there. And there's, there's good ways to do that in bad ways. One interesting thing that came out of like writing this was a change that needed to happen in Ecto. It was really difficult to actually find the exact SQL that was running when you do a migration. When you do mix Ecto.migrate, there's a flag there that says log, log SQL. That will log the actual SQL of the changes that you're making. So if you're adding a, a database table, it'll say create table. That's what you see in your logs. That's great. But what I found difficult was finding like all of the SQL that was running, even the stuff that manages the migration. It can be important to know like when there are database transactions, for example. So the begin and the commit part, the after begin callbacks that Ecto gives you, maybe there's a, a table that's being locked. Like you don't get to see that stuff. At least you didn't in older versions of Ecto. And as part of that, rating the series, I helped contribute a PR to Ecto to... Um, Kind of changed the way that that stuff was logged. Now there's an additional flag that says a log migrator SQL. Now you can see everything. You can see all of the SQL that runs in an Ecto migration. So that was pretty interesting to get into Ecto. One thing I wanted to ask you guys about, though, is about data migrations and see how often do you guys do that? How often do you not just change the schema, but have to change some of the data in the schema? You, ever guys, you guys ever run into that? It's always unfortunate when you run into that. <laughs> I like to just change the shape and not the data. Yeah. When you get into the data migration aspect, I feel like there's lots of opinions and lots of ways to go about it. And I feel like every place I've gone to with any more than like one data migration, it's like when you try to get up and running on your laptop, it's like it's out of date or like nobody's ran the migrations from scratch since 1990 and so like they don't all run and you have to go tweak them in order to get up to speed and run all the migrations and it's like so many things going on yeah i think you touched on this a little bit in one of these articles is like do you separate data migrations from schema migrations do you run them completely separately i know there was like a dash bit blog on that concept like just put them in a completely different place and only optionally run them right so that they don't mix with your actual schema migrations Having come up through Rails in my professional career, and that's where I first learned about migrations, it just seemed like the natural place. Like I, I have to make a change to my database and I want it to only happen once. So I'll just put all my data migrations in there as well. So it just seemed like the place to put it because it was almost built for that kind of purpose. And then, yeah, as you work with systems over time, you know, there's been a lot of talk about, oh, you should never use an ecto schema, meaning the structs. You should never use those in a migration because the code is going to change. And then that's exactly what Cade was talking about. You come back a year later and it won't even compile. 
that kind of stuff happens. And when you've gone through enough of that, you're like, okay, there's problems with this. So one pendulum swing said, never use an ecto schema struct in your migrations ever. Any changes you need to make through straight execute SQL statements or update statements and things like that. I wrote about this in the backfilling data part because, yeah, I I realize that it's going to be different for like every system. I don't think there's a one true way of doing this for now. I have thoughts on this maybe later, but (laughs) the guide is going to go through two examples of this. And I agree. I gone into code bases where they've just straight up used the ecto schema or the active record model, like straight up in the, in the migration. And yeah, that's like a recipe for trouble. Like you're, you're not going to have that same layout. Something's going to change with that data at some point. The column won't exist anymore or something. Right. But I think that's what people reach for initially, because it's like, that's the way you like take your schema, you pipe it into a change set, you pipe it into update. Like that's how you do it everywhere. It's easy. And it's so easy to just initially reach for that. So what are you suggesting they do instead? So Mark touched on one of them. I think it is safe to put just straight SQL into an execute, you know, just, just go straight to the adapter and execute straight up SQL. That SQL should never change at that moment of time. If it's timestamped correctly and when the schema looks like that, that should always work. So that's safe. I would recommend that. If you can do that, I would recommend that. I definitely don't recommend using the schemas inside of your app code. Don't use that because it's going to break for those reasons that we talked about. Like your schema is going to change over time. The column's not going to be there. Something's going to fail. And you don't know what the future looks like. It would be naive to think that it's never going to change. Right. And even if you're like 100% sure it's never going to change, this is some code play, you know, play thing. It's still a good practice. So you just don't reach for that, you know, as soon as you need to do this. As a practice, don't do it. One of the solutions I've seen that people do for that, like where they have all these broken migrations, oh, we'll just delete a whole bunch of the old migrations. <laughs> <laughs> and, and they just whole batch delete a bunch of them. Some of them are structure changes. Some of them are data changes. They're just all gone. So like you cannot start the project clean. You have to get a data backup from somebody for your local dev stuff. That sounds really fun. <laughs> you know, I didn't actually talk about this in the guide. So here's your bonus chapter here. If you have like a long series of migrations, you can delete them safely if you dump your structure. That's your starting point then. You have to load the structure and then you can run your migrations. But So like your first migration is like, take this SQL structure dump and load it. That's without any data, you know, migrations that wouldn't really be reflected in there. So you you lose that part. But I think that if you're just seeding the projects for the first time, that wouldn't matter anyway. So you're you're probably fine. So I saw this other way someone in the community mentioned, instead of using your schemas that you use live, or instead of using raw SQL execute statements, there's another way where they inline new ecto schemas in the migration file. And then they only create fields for like the one or two fields that you're adjusting or using in the migration. What are your thoughts on this? I think that's okay. And the guide goes through one example of that. Your surface area of change is reduced greatly when you do that. There's still surface area, like API surface area that can change. For example, if you upgrade Ecto and that function's not there anymore. (laughs) That would be a big breaking change though. Yeah, that'd be be a big breaking change, but uh, less likely. If there were like a new Ecto 10.0 release and they were like, (laughs) you know, repo.update is no longer a function, you you know, you'd have to go through your entire code base and look for repo.update and you would find 
in a migration that you used it and you have to change it, you know, it's a good middle ground because you're not having to do raw executes and maybe someone's not comfortable with that. But at the same time, you can still use what you're used to. You can still pipe it into the repo functions and still use things that you're used to using. I think one of the reasons that people like to still work with the schemas is especially if you're dealing with something that has relationships. You know, you have child tables and you have parent relationships and you have foreign keys and being able to do updates on that kind of stuff is easier when you're dealing with uh, schema structs. And then there's also, you have like the functions for casting and maybe you already have a bunch of change set stuff that are automatically populating some of the fields inferred from other data. So it's easier to do that than it is to understand everything that's going on so you can write it correctly as a SQL statement and just make sure you're not missing anything. So I totally understand why people want to do that. And I think it is valid if you are able to strip down to just the essence of what is needed to represent the structure at that time and you define it in that migration. But beyond that, I think it is really valuable, like what you go through, David, in the guide is having those data migrations be completely separate in a separate directory. And Wojtek Mach actually had a uh, an article that was inspired by that helped that uh, that idea. Right? These are these are one time processes and probably processes that need to be run manually until you have like a proper system that runs these things, but still manually. <laughs> but your schema migrations, perhaps those are run automatically when you're like right before your app boots, for example. And so, like separating them out was important to me because you want that to be a clearly different running process for when those data migrations run. And so the fact that like Ecto can look in two directories and run everything from there or select the directory that you want to run from, like that's a great option. So I, I love that that flag exists and, and the flag is like a migrations directory or something like that. It's in the guide. That's really great. And I want to talk about one more option. So we talked about using uh, schemas like from your app code. That's a bad idea. Don't do that. We also talked about copying the essence of what you want to change into a new schema defined in your migration. It's a good option. There is a third option. Well, I guess the third option is just doing raw SQL. So just drop down to the adapter and raw. You're saying there's a fourth? There's a fourth option, yes. Oh my. The fourth option is you don't have to have a schema at all. You can do your Ecto querying and stuff without the schema part of it. Like you can do from P in and a string. And the string is the database table. You don't have to do like P in Ecto schema, you know, the module. All Ecto is doing is inferring from there what the schema is and what the database table, the source of that schema is from. And, and that example is also in the guide. So you can dive into that some more. So there's a lot of ways to do these data migrations safer, I think, without tying so much to application code, which is much more likely to change over time. Those are four options we talk about in the data migrations. Real briefly, I'll just touch on like the parts of the data migration that are also just as important. Like we, we talked about like referencing schemas and that can break over time. So now hopefully they won't break, but there's also that there's other ways to do the safe part of the migration. I talk about four keys of safety for these data migrations. And the first one's batching, throttling, resiliency, you know, and uh, database transactions. You got to know about all four of those things before you run those data migrations. And so it goes into depth into each of those, but you need to throttle your database mutations that you're doing in your data migration. You need to throttle that because 
code can be fast and it can consume all of the database connections and not want to give them up anymore, which means that your web requests are going to be starved for a database connection. It's going to act like downtime anyway. So you got to throttle it. Your users can just wait. There's important stuff going on. <laughs> there, there is. Just throttle it. That's a real easy thing to do. You just do process sleep for a couple of milliseconds. Give time for those database connections to be taken up by a web request process, for example. So that's one thing. Throttling, that's covered. Batching was another one. We need to make sure that we don't change all of the data all at once. So we need to do it in batches, which keeps locking those rows really minuscule, keeps the database from being like memory exhausted too. So you're not updating a million rows all at once. You're, you're updating maybe a thousand rows at once. And that can happen really quickly. And then resiliency is the last part. Resiliency means you're going to find bad data in your, in your database table. And it's not going to be the what you thought it was going to be. And your code to do the update, you know, the, the data migration part, isn't going to work for some reason. Making sure you have a fallback, a way to handle that kind of stuff so that you don't have to re-migrate everything all over again, or at least pick up where it left off. And so that resiliency is a big part of doing these migrations really safely too. Those are the big keys to safely migrating data, batching, throttling, resiliency, and then the database transactions. I don't talk about the database transactions here because that's just another simple concept. You just, just turn those off, let your database transactions be per batch. You don't want it to be on the entire migration, so just turn those off. Not a huge deal. The effect of having it on for the entire migration is probably what you can guess it to be, is that it's, it's going to hold all of those changes all at once, and it's going to be like as if you didn't have batching or throttling even turned on. You know, it's just going to be all at once. And that's, that's no bueno. So one thing I just want to make sure we just touch on here is there's some really great tips in this guide. And one of those is when you're having to do those data migrations and you give the example of you need to go through an increment of value in a particular column. You can't necessarily tell that that data has already been visited or not. So like if it crashes halfway through and I would need to resume, how do I just not accidentally keep incrementing from the beginning and just (laughs) have problems? And so you give a great example of how you can use temporary tables to help keep tabs of where you're at. I want to make sure people are aware of this resource. Totally worth checking out. But David, that's about all the time we have for today. But if people want to find this online or want to follow you or get in touch with you, maybe they have some questions... Where should they go to do that? Fly.io slash Phoenix dash files. That's where you're going to find the home base of this. This is a series and then in there is going to be a, a safe Ecto migrations article. So that's where you're going to find it. Again, we'll have a direct link. You can always talk to me directly on Twitter at Bernheisel. And lastly, if you have suggestions on how to do safe migrations, like if you have an additional recipe, there's a, a Git repo where we're going to let that stuff evolve in. So feel free to open up an, an issue or discussion there on the GitHub repo, and uh, I'll be happy to, to figure that out with you. And one thing what we could actually use a lot of help with is that I did this from a very Postgres perspective. I know that because that's the one I use. I don't know so much about MariaDB or MySQL or MSQL. And since Ecto has good adapters for those databases, it would be fantastic if there was an expert in the area of those specific databases and can contribute those kinds of migration recipes. Database transactions, for example, are, are pretty different than those other non-Postgres databases. So having those recipes directly referencing those others would be really good. 
we'll have links to that GitHub repo. Well, I'm glad we were able to dig into some of this topic, talking about safe ecto migrations, because I know it's one of those resources I wish I had when I was a junior developer and I'm developing my app. And I just had to learn some of those lessons the hard way and it all worked out okay. It could have helped prevent some pulling out my hair and stress of when I'm dealing with like, oh no, what's going on? Why is it doing this? And just not having that full appreciation for it. So I'm really happy this can be a resource that the community can lean into and hopefully reference and use in an ongoing way. But that's all the time we have for today. Thank you for listening. And we hope you'll join us next time on Thinking Elixir.